0: Hours That Be daily, Puck's podcast focused on the intersection of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood, and the players who run it all. I'm Peter Hamby. It's Thursday, August 25th, and today Tara Palmieri is here to talk about something we absolutely didn't think we'd be talking about when the year began, the possibility of Democrats keeping control of the Senate in November's midterms. And later on, Teddy Schleifer stops by to talk about Mark Andreessen, one of Silicon Valley's most famous and outspoken venture capitalists. He fell a bit quiet during the Trump years, even though he blocked me and a bunch of other reporters on Twitter for some reason. But he's now poking his head out in the political space once again. What can we learn about the elusive billionaire from his political donations? We'll hear about all that and more on today's episode of Powers That Be. So trust me on this one, visit sleep.me slash powers to get your chili pad and save up to $315 with code powers. This offer is available exclusively for powers that be listeners and only for a limited time. Order it today with free shipping and try it out for 30 days. You can return it for free if you don't like it with their sleep trial. Visit www.sleepsleep.me/powers because you're not just investing in better sleep, you're creating a better life. Happy Thursday, everybody. There's something interesting happening in politics these days, which is it is a midterm election, but Democrats don't look like they're toast. The Cook Political Report is saying they're revising down the number of seats they think Republicans will gain in the House and saying Democratic control is not the question. And Mitch McConnell has come out and said that Republicans might not actually win back the Senate for an answer or many answers about what's going on here. I'm joined by Tara Mary. How are you, Tara?
1: Hi, Peter. Thanks for having me.
0: Of course. This year is interesting because the Donald Trump touch of gold in Republican primaries has basically worked in terms of candidates winning the nomination. But it's led to candidates like Herschel Walker in Georgia. It's led to candidates like Blake Masters running for Senate in Arizona. And this is also flared on, in, in governor's races with Doug Mastriano in Pennsylvania, Carrie Lake in Arizona. I feel like the issue is most crystallized this year in Pennsylvania, where Donald Trump weirdly, but predictably endorsed Dr. Oz because he's a TV guy and Trump loves TV guys. And the campaign of John Fetterman, the Democratic nominee, sort of Bernie-ish socialist dude, he's the guy who, you know, likes to wear sweatpants and and, and basketball shorts and doesn't look very typical, and he's trying to own being from Pennsylvania, is just kicking Oz's teeth in. Fetterman's playing the role of Pennsylvania Hardo in saying, Dr. Oz, is from New Jersey. He owns a bunch of houses. He's out of touch. Uh, You know, they sort of helped that video of Oz shopping for Crudite go viral. And now Fetterman, according to the Real Clear Politics average, is leading Dr. Oz by about seven and a half points. Does Oz have a way to make a, a comeback here with a couple months left before the midterms? Or is he kind of a dead man walking right now, politically?
1: The low key vibe right now is that that's kind of a hopeless case. As we know, August polls can be a little unpredictable. People are away on vacation, but I think the numbers are just too disparate for Oz right now. I don't see the Senate Leadership Fund throwing a ton of money at Dr. Oz. That's Mitch McConnell's uh, campaign arm. NRSC like, partnered with ads with him, I think, last month, and it was about like, 500000 But they also told him, dude, you got to take this more seriously no more trips to Palm Beach, no more trip to Ireland. I mean, he was in Jackson Hole last week for Kevin McCarthy's congressional retreat, but it was with a bunch of donors and the guy needs money. So it makes sense that he's there. So yeah, that campaign's not going well. Question is like, are people going to blame Trump for that? I mean, in fairness to Oz, his primary was very expensive. It was intense against David McCormick. They had a recount. But I think a lot of people now in hindsight are thinking David McCormick probably would have been a much stronger candidate. And the gaffes, like not knowing how many houses you have, filming campaign videos from your New Jersey house. And that's the whole thing. All these candidates that Trump endorsed are political neophytes, which Trump likes because they're not establishment, right? That goes with the Trump MAGA brand. J.D. Vance, Blake Masters, Herschel Walker, Dr. Oz. They're not seasoned political pros, but they're also not swamp creatures, right?
0: It's pretty remarkable, um, both from a candidate quality perspective. And by that, I mean, are you good on the stump? Do you have a message? Do you have good instincts? The campaigns themselves are feeling shoddy. Any professional campaign, for example, would have gone back to Dr. Oz's old tweets from when he was like hawking products on television and erased those things. So now Dr. Oz has these old tweets up from like 2012 and 2013 about like poop supplements and like sex advice. And they're like, under Dr. Oz's official campaign account. And again, the Fetterman campaign is smartly elevating those things on Twitter. So it drives this narrative in the press that Oz is like a rich, out-of-touch guy who doesn't care about Pennsylvanians. But the flip side of this too, Tara, is like Democrats have nominated some pretty good candidates and have some incumbents that are pretty good. So Raphael Warnock in Georgia, um, that's a good matchup against Rachel Walker.
1: Tim Ryan, he's a pretty moderate Democrat. Yeah,
0: Tim Ryan, who's very like the Ohio worker guy against J.D. Vance, who's the rich Yale dude, like venture capital guy. Mark Kelly, great profile for Arizona, just got endorsed by a ton of local Republicans there. So he's got that bipartisan brand. Big contrast in Wisconsin, Ron Johnson has gone all in on being a Trump lunatic. And Mandela Barnes, Lieutenant Governor, definitely has some Bernie background that the Johnson campaign is using against him, but young black guy from Milwaukee, great contrast. And so the Senate is split even. Democrats have no margin for error to save the Senate. And yet we're talking about it. Even Mitch McConnell's saying they might not get back the Senate.
1: Right. But I've heard some people saying that that comment from Mitch McConnell is like hurting fundraising. People are saying, why should I give you money if Mitch McConnell says you're not even going to win the Senate? The one thing that all these candidates that are struggling have in common is that they were endorsed by Trump. So it's like right now the blame game is already sort of happening. It's just real low key finger pointing. Like, is it McConnell's fault? But everyone's sort of complaining too that Trump has sort of hijacked the messaging again. Whereas they feel like they're not talking enough about crime, the economy. They don't want to talk about abortion. They don't have an answer to that. Steer away, right? But Mar-a-Lago, like they're stuck defending the Mar-a-Lago raid. They didn't even really get to hit the Inflation Reduction Act. They didn't get the chance because that entire news cycle was completely consumed by Mar-a-Lago.
0: The flip side of this though is Democrats are feeling pretty good right now. Mitch McConnell is smart. He could be lowering expectations. I think you make a great point. Like that's lowering expectations strategically might also be a wet blanket on fundraising for Republicans. But these polls that have Democrats up by three or down by three in various states, like hold on to your butts. Like Mm -hmm. I do continue to think that the quote unquote shy Trump voter is embedded in those polls. And like, if you're Fetterman and you're like plus seven, plus eight over Oz, Okay, like you can feel pretty good for now. It's hard to shift that narrative, even though there's two months left. But in Ohio, in Georgia, in Nevada, where Catherine Cortez-Masto is facing Adam Laxalt, the Republican, like she's in trouble. That's a jump ball. Right. You want to be outside that margin of error if you're a Democrat to feel good because Republicans, especially Trump Republicans, are like just don't show up in polls. And Republicans will probably outperform the final polls. So if you are Tim Ryan and your tie with J.D. Vance. Like, I'm not betting on Tim Ryan in that situation. The tie goes to the Republican in a midterm year, especially with the polls the way they are.
1: Also, we're about 81 days away right now. Does Trump actually announce before then his candidacy? How does that impact it? Um, I was talking to some people that were at Kevin McCarthy's retreat in Jackson Hole, the big donor retreat. And one of the things they said was, like, the elephant in the room was okay, you're laying everything out, like turnout, messaging, this, that. What about Trump? No one said it, but there was no sort of like, okay, now here's the X factor and this is how we're planning for it. They're not, they feel like they can't plan for it. They don't know how to.
0: Oh, interesting. So they're
1: not addressing it at all, but it could totally change the game in a lot of ways.
0: So you're saying that like the McCarthy's strategist, McCarthy himself, whoever's presenting in these donor presentations at a donor retreat, they're just sort of like not, mentioning the possibility of Trump being a drag. No,
1: nothing. The only way they mentioned it was like in the word policy and everyone was just like, okay, like let's see some models in which he announces his candidacy was what people said they were thinking. Not, they don't said it. Like, let's see that model because then that changes the game, right?
0: My hunch, I mean, I'd love to hear your take on this, but my hunch is that Kevin McCarthy doesn't want to include that in any donor presentation, even the whiff of saying something bad about Donald Trump because then it would immediately get back to Donald Trump who would get mad and tweet about it. Sorry, truth about it.
1: TS about it as I was schooled on. (laughs) Also something else that attendees said to me that they noticed was that like, there really wasn't an answer on abortion. It was just like deflect to economy. That makes me feel that they're very flat footed and defensive on this. I know they try to paint Democrats as extremists, but I don't think it's penetrating. And I don't think they've really, and everyone says, oh, it's district by district. But I think this is an issue for them until they solidify a response on abortion. I think they're going to just keep deflect and pivot just is not like a place of strength.
0: I think you're exactly right there. I think that the uh, referendum in Kansas was one example in which, you know, Kansas voters in Kansas brushed back an abortion ban that was on the ballot. And most of the new voter registrations in Kansas were women. We have seen uh, just on Tuesday, Pat Ryan won by five or six in a Trump district because most of his messaging was around abortion. And the government keeping their hands off of women's health decisions. And I haven't seen anything to the contrary that Republicans are pretty flat-footed on this right now.
1: It's hard because some of them are saying 15 weeks. Some of them are saying like all-out ban. There's no sort of unified messaging on this.
0: It's the dog that caught the car. I mean, like, yeah, Republicans have been running on abortion for 40 years now. Yeah. But it's been an oppositional. We're going to overturn Roe. We need to do this. and it has been able to rally people. Okay, now you caught the car. Now what? (laughs) Tara the last thing I want to ask you is you know Dr. Oz went viral for shopping for crudité. the weirdest thing about the crudité shopping to me was buying broccoli and asparagus to pair with guacamole and salsa would you ever dip asparagus in guacamole
1: no in fact I wouldn't (laughs) and in fact I would say with asparagus you have to cook it or like have have you ever had cooked cold asparagus not something I like asparagus but I don't want it cold and dipped in guacamole also, I feel like the whole world was like crudité. It's like, oh, this guy's been to France a lot.
0: It's certainly true that it doesn't look like he's been to a grocery store a lot because uh, he said he bought a head of broccoli and it was like, instead of saying it was by the the weight, like the cost per weight, he said, this broccoli costs $5. And you're like, no, dude, you weigh broccoli by the pound at grocery stores like most vegetables.
1: I think you got to go. If you're Dr. Oz, just be like Trump. Like, I'm rich. I don't go to grocery stores. <laughs> <laughs> right. Maybe own it. Insincerity is the worst thing. Just be like, I'm a doctor and I'm on television. I'm rich. And that's why you should trust me because I'm successful. Just throwing it out there. I don't think the everyman thing is working for you. It's not.
0: It's not. Again, JV campaign. Um, all right, Tara, thank you so much. We'll have you back soon. Thank you. When we come back, Ben Landy speaks to Teddy Schleifer about billionaire investor Mark Andreessen, who's dipping his toe back in the political waters. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you profit with NetSuite. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash powers that be. netsuite.com powers that be. That's netsuite.com slash powers that be. Welcome back, everybody. I'm Ben
2: Landy here with Teddy Schleifer. I wanted to have you on today to talk about Marc Andreessen, the venture capitalist co-founder at Andreessen Horowitz, that's become a sort of hyper-polarizing figure in Silicon Valley. He created some of the first web browsers just on the board of Facebook, has billions of dollars he's put to work in VC, investing in some of the biggest companies. But he's also on your radar, of course, because he's had a very familiar political journey over the last few years, like a lot of people in tech, from sort of the center-left technocratic worldview to something that's a little bit more, well, how, how would you describe it? Uh, reactionary?
3: Yeah, reactionary is a good word. Um, I mean, look, uh, the, the joys of being online is you can kind of look at how people engage online. A- and Mark is not a secretive figure and does not hide what he thinks about the world. And you can just look at his Twitter account. for. Much of kind of the, the early internet, or at least the early internet post-Twitter, Mark was extraordinarily active on Twitter, like like to the point where if you were an LP invent in, in Andres and Horowitz, you might wonder, why is this is this guy actually doing any work or is he just tweeting all day? Um, there was an Elon-ish element of it. And then he basically shut down his account during the Trump era. You know, I think he felt that talking about politics meant talking about Trump and meant talking about, you know, his kind of center right proclivities was harder to do in a, in a Trump-free uh, way and basically shut up about it. A- and now that Trump is out of office, Mark Andreessen feels tact, feels like he is the subject of unfair media scrutiny. He is more defined by what he is not than what he is for. He believes that much of the mainstream media is fundamentally broken. He believes that Democrats and and the woke left are obsessed with kind of issues of race and gender. He believes that people are obsessed with Trump. And Mark wants to be charting, I guess, kind of a different path for the Republican Party that's more focused on issues like housing, like on education. Those are his politics today. But it's been quite an evolution. I mean, this is someone who, you know, back in the late 90s was throwing fundraisers for Al Gore and was sort of a confidant to lots of center-left politicians. And now he's one of Silicon Valley's leading conservatives.
2: Right. And he's also a hugely influential figure in that pure set that includes guys like Elon Musk, Peter Thiel, Joe Lonsdale, David Sachs. You would know better than me what the specific relationship is like between each of these guys. And of course, all of their politics are a little bit different. But as you say, in the aggregate, there has been this rightward drift in tech that is, you know, pro markets, but anti-China, increasingly nationalistic. Broadly anti woke, skeptical of bureaucracy. And it's opened up an opportunity for some new right, networkers, fundraisers, bundlers, guys like Chris Buskirk, who, who you've written about, who want to redirect that fire hose of wealth and political capital that's out there in the Bay Area and take that and move it from the left toward the GOP.
3: Mark Andreessen is not Peter Thiel. Let's just start with that. I mean, Mark and Peter are. Of the people we listed, Ben, I think I think Mark is probably closest with Peter. Like They're very close friends. Um, but yes, Mark is part of this broader kind of social network of of center-right men in their 40s and 50s who are at the leading edge of, of tech. But Andreessen has, has always sort of been, at least in recently, has been elusive. He's someone who, if you look at you know federal contributions, he's not giving $10 million to a J.D. Vance super PAC, even though he and J.D. Vance agree on a hell of a lot there's this energy right now to capitalize on the anti-left moment in Silicon Valley, not just to get like people tweeting about it. Like they want money. So for instance, you mentioned this, this operative named Chris Buskirk, whoever, written about a couple of times, if anyone is in the center of kind of the new right fundraising conversations, it's Buskirk. Buskirk runs the Blake Masters super PAC in Arizona. Buskirk is a confidant of Peter Thiel and Buskirk has been, up in Silicon Valley, a lot over the last couple of years, talking with people like Mark Andreessen, trying to get them to move from tweets to to real money. And look, I mean, I don't think this is a theoretical conversation. Blake Masters and J.D. Vance are both running surprisingly weak, I think, in both their races, it's fair to say. And they both could use cash to close the gap with their well-funded Democratic opponents. If Mark Andreessen believes in the new right and believes in nationalism and believes in beating back the libs, like... A $5 million check would would accomplish a lot. It's
2: interesting to me when you say that the rightward drift of guys like Andreessen and some of the other people we've spoken about was sort of masked by the Trump years, that a lot of them fell quiet. Maybe they supported some of Trump's policies, but they were so turned off by him personally. They didn't want to be associated with his agenda. And it feels like we're in this perhaps fleeting window where they have become outspoken again because Biden is in power. But look, Trump is on the horizon, threatening to run again. He could announce at any moment, and so I wonder if this moment may pass. If uh, if Trump becomes the GOP presidential nominee, do these guys kind of retreat back into the woodwork?
3: You know, I think it's a it's, it's a great way to put it. And to be clear, like I think it's a sort of a fiction even now. But you can pretend that like Trump is not the leader of the GOP, and you can go back to talking about charter schools. and other kind of center-right fascinations that were true during the Bush era because Trump is not the technical nominee. I think there's this whataboutism that probably drives lots of people on the right crazy where, you know, if you want to talk about education reform, they would see critics on the left and frankly, people like us in in media to say, yeah, but what about Trump? To be pro-charter schools means you're pro-Republican Party and that means you're pro-Trump. What about Trump? What about January 6th? What about impeachment? What about Ukraine? And that's, you know, fucking annoying to conservative power players. And there's this moment now where you can pretend that doesn't happen. Now you can have this political renaissance in this brief interregnum in the culture wars. Or you hope that Ron DeSantis runs and you can rally around DeSantis. I've written about how Silicon Valley leaders like him a lot. And, you know, I imagine Mark Andreessen would support Ron DeSantis over Donald Trump. That's pure speculation, but... That's the best case scenario.
2: Yeah, that's a fascinating point, Teddy. I mean, I think Ron DeSantis obviously is very Trumpy in many ways, but does not have the same repellent personal characteristics that turned off so many tech leaders. Teddy, what are some of the things that you are looking at to help you assess to what extent some of these people we've talked about are potentially turning their support to a guy like DeSantis?
3: Let's see whether or not these people actually pony up, right? I mean, DeSantis... Obviously, he has to decide whether he's running or not. But, you know, Sanders is doing an event in Los Angeles, I believe, next month down in Miami, which is obviously a mecca for lots of tech leaders. There's a huge fundraiser next month that we saw the invite for hosted by David Sachs and Keith Raboy, who are two other kind of leading conservative figures in tech hosting, I think, nine or 10 different Senate candidates at Keith Raboy's place in Miami. So there's certainly a lot of Republican fundraising energy right now coming from Silicon Valley and tech leaders.
2: Well, Thanks, Teddy. For anyone who wants to know more about all of those stories, you recently did some incredible reporting about all of that. You can find that at puck.news.
0: Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Powers That Be. As a reminder, The Powers That Be is the official podcast of Puck. We'd like to thank Ben Landy, Liz Goff, and Alex Bigler for their editorial and production guidance. If you like what you hear, please share with a friend. It really helps us keep delivering the inside scoop that only Puck can offer. Follow us on Twitter at Puck News. I'm Peter Hamby. See you tomorrow. This has been a presentation of Cadence 13 Studios. Please listen, rate, review, and follow all episodes wherever you get your podcasts. The Powers That Be Daily is executive produced by John Kelly, co-founder of Puck, and Chris Corcoran, chief content officer and founding partner of Cadence 13.